Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. There is always the lingering notion inside humankind, what if one of us turned into a god? What if, us, what if one of us turned out to be a god? You know, we see that in superheroes, but we also see it in saints. There's that notion that maybe certain human beings could straddle the line between mortality and divinity. And then there really just are some human beings who have been almost fully mistaken for gods or have claimed that they were fully mistaken for gods in order to advance some kind of mytho-political agenda. All of that is going to be covered today. There's a new book out about this. It's fascinating stuff, and I'm actually really quite happy with my status as a mortal right now. He has been expected for generations by many religions. Christians await him as the Christ, Jews as the Messiah, Muslims as the Messiah or as the Imamadi. Hindus look for Krishna and Buddhists the fifth Buddha. Our guest, Benjamin Krem, has one of the most provocative messages of our time, that all the religions, without knowing it, are awaiting the return of the same individual, even though they call him by different names. And what's more, that this individual is already among us. Already among us, Benjamin, I'm sure comes as news to most people who are hearing this. Are there, in fact, those in the world for whom this is not news, who have, in fact, seen him? Oh, indeed, there are thousands of such people all over the world. One particularly well-media-documented event was in Nairobi, in Kenya, in June 88, when he suddenly appeared out of thin air, I mean, literally out of thin air, at a prayer meeting attended by 6,000 people. But, uh, who instantaneously recognized him as the Christ. And about 30, 40 people around him, close to him, were entirely healed. They walked off, threw away their crutches. And, but overall, uh, it would be fair to say that he's kept a somewhat low profile in, in appearing. Yes. He works within the law, the law governing our free will. And most people who give any kind of thought at all to the idea of a Christ returning to the world, visualize him coming down on a cloud, you know, from heaven, tremendous dramatic event, uh, waving a rod of power, surrounded by angels, blowing trumpets, and so on. In fact, he said, sleep not, keep awake, keep alert, for I come like a thief in the night. In such an hour, I should think not. And that's exactly what he has done. All right, um, a little personal history here. So that uh, person that you're hearing, Benjamin Krem, uh, is somebody that I interviewed a number of times in the 1990s. And the reason, the shameful reason I interviewed him, I was working in a different format of radio. It was the kind of format of radio where the producers are always kind of looking around for something to put into various time slots without necessarily curating or thinking very carefully about what that something might be. And Benjamin Krem or his representative just was the kind of guest who was on a lot of Rolodexes, which actually also existed at that time. Uh, and, and so – and he was a very good-natured person and and good about – 
going on almost anywhere. And because he was sort of, as you could maybe tell, John the Baptist for this divine being, Maitreya, he just sort of considered it, I think, his job to, in the most good-natured way, talking to the stupidest host, still try to make a pretty persuasive case for this. So this is but one facet. It's really the end of the book that we are going to be talking about today uh, with Ana de la Subin. Uh, the book is Accidental Gods, On Men Unwittingly Turned Divine. Uh, this is sort of how the book ends. We're going to walk you through a lot of things in the book. But first of all, uh, Ana Della, welcome to our show. Oh, thanks so much. It's great to be here. So Tell us a little bit more about this particular story. This particular story, it doesn't conform all that tightly with a lot of the other kind of models and paradigms that run through your book. But but it is sort of part of that idea, right? This notion that there's a kind of hunger in certain quarters for something like this to happen. Oh, absolutely. And it's amazing to me that you actually interviewed Benjamin Krem um, or a representative of him. Um you know, that the story there is, is super fascinating. So in 2010, uh, Krem, who's kind of an inheritor of the theosophical tradition, he issued this sensational announcement that the Maitreya or this Messiah figure had just appeared on an American TV show. And so across the earth, his followers were kind of searching for clues and they decided that this British Indian economist, Raj Patel, who lived in San Francisco, actually fit all the prophetic criteria. And he had just appeared on the Colbert Report um, of all shows. And so Raj was in a taxi and suddenly all these messages started pouring into his phone saying, are you the one? And he was really confused. Uh, and then all these strangely excited people started showing up at his lectures about kind of prosaic subjects like, you know, food scarcity. And, and he was, you know, very confused. And he actually ended up arranging a face-to-face -face meeting with Krem where they realized that his apotheosis had all been a mistake. Right. We should, <laughs> we're we're going to help you out a little bit more with some, mm -hmm. uh, uh, some more audio because uh, uh, Raj Patel also found it necessary to go back to the Colbert Report. Let's get to the question that's on everyone's mind. Are you, in fact, the long-awaited messiah? Um, no. I mean, I Are you not aware that Benjamin Cream also prophesied that the true messiah would deny his messiahhood? So would you I, like to try that again? Are you the messiah? Well, well no. I mean, I'm not 95,000 hey, years old. <laughs> yes, go on. I'm the last person who should be the messiah. I've spent a lot of time arguing that what we need is, you know, uh, uh, not to believe in great leaders and people bringing hope and change and that, we're, you know, we can change the world by actually small acts of rebellion and mutual aid. So I think the whole idea of being the messiah is entirely bogus. That sounds very holy of you. Now, <laughs> why, why, why would you deny your messiahhood? Wouldn't it be better to be the messiah, and if you want to change the world, tell people what to do? Um, no, because uh, I, I think the, the whole point of uh, social change is not to follow leaders, but actually that we can think for ourselves. All right, so Anadella, one of the things that Colbert does there 
perhaps not really knowing how comprehensively he's doing it, it is kind of kick one of the tripwires that's in your book, which is that if you would like people to believe the already extant notion that you might be a god, really the best thing that you can do, whether you're a British army officer named John Nicholson or, or the last emperor of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie, or a whole bunch of other people, is say, no, I'm not a god. <laughs> that, as Colbert seems to be suggesting, is a great way to persuade people that you are. Right, exactly. Um, so on some, you know, for instance, Rastafari uh, chat forums, you see people, right, you know, analyzing videos of Haile Selassie saying almost identical words as what Raj Patel said, you know, I'm I'm not God. Um, and for for these Rastafari listeners, they're saying, well, of course, you know, God, God wouldn't wouldn't, you know, it's his divine humility, you know, like, why would you trust a God who's boasting about being God. Um, but you know that what's so funny about that clip that you just played too is like in the case of Raj Patel, even his stutter um, was used as proof of his divinity. Even that, you know, seemed to fit some prophetic criteria. And there's a, an American association for, you know, people who have stutters, which also embrace this idea that, you know, a stutter is, you know, a great asset to have. Um, and so literally anything, you know, you could, he could say just is explained away by those who believe in his divinity. So your book, which is uh, really just fascinating to read and isn't simply a case-by-case case account of these people who get elevated often with no intent to have that happen, but also some theories that, that go along with it, some trends that we that we spot uh, in a lot of these cases. So we'll, we'll weave those through our conversation. But and we should say also the book begins very interestingly in antiquity, in Greco-Roman times, uh, where in fact the sort of the, the monorail connecting you from mortality to godhood ran on a pretty regular basis. There were you know lots of people who were kind of understood to have had that happen, at least as a matter of legend. Roman emperors had to kind of decide not to be gods, except for Julius Caesar, until they died. That was like sort of a, a death benefit. You got turned into a god. So there was a lot of that kind of thing going on. And obviously that also kind of bleeds into the Christian era too. You have the already aforementioned John the Baptist. But you sort of set that aside, right? This is this is not really where you think the stories that seem a little bit chained together here begin. It's more really in the 15th century where things get rolling for you. Explain the difference between those two eras. Right. So, you know, I'm I'm really looking at deification in the modern age. You know, there's there's, you know, that old line that like modernity killed God, as Nisha famously announced, God is dead. Um, you know, who will wipe the blood from us? Um, but I'm actually kind of suggesting that actually the modern age has been all about creating new gods and the divine has just multiplied in all these completely unexpected ways starting from the so-called dawn of the modern age, which is when Columbus lands in the new world. And in his diaries, he reported that he was hailed as a celestial being by the people he met. And this claim, you know, gets repeated over and over again and again. 
later explorers too. So right, you know, my story really begins in the 15th century and goes right up to the present day with Trump. Right. So, and, <laughs> yes, and she's not kidding either. You know, in terms of people who really have been deified, the, the Haile Selassies, the Douglas MacArthur's, is there a pattern or is there are there things that one does uh, that lead people to that conclusion? Or does the apotheosis just sort of happen because it happens? In other words, does Haile Selassie do a bunch of things? We, we should emphasize that Haile Selassie wasn't acclaimed a god in Ethiopia where he was doing his business. This was all happening in Jamaica. So it seems unlikely that it's happening because he's acting a certain way or accomplishing certain feats. But but speak to that a little bit. I mean, so so you want to be a god. Is there anything you can do to get that going? Well, across all of these stories, these apotheoses are rising at moments of upheaval and loss. Um, so whether it's stories at times of colonial conquest or political uprising or colonization, um, and that's true of the case of Haile Selassie and the Rastafari religion in Jamaica. So in 1930, Haile Selassie was crowned emperor in this spectacular ceremony in Addis Ababa. And he invited all the powers of the earth to be there because he needed to create this kind of veneer of legitimacy for himself because he was deep in a battle for succession uh, with another nobleman. And so, you know, uh, there were a lot of journalists at the event and some of them described it as this totally unrehearsed mess. Um, But the American consul general was there covering it for National Geographic. And he wrote about it in these kind of rapturous biblical tones. And in this one particular line in the piece, he seemed to suggest that King George V of Britain's own son had bowed down on bended knee before Haile Selassie. And so on the other side of the earth in Jamaica, people saw this issue of National Geographic and especially this line about the Duke of Gloucester paying homage And they had this idea simultaneously that God was alive on earth right now and he was a black man. Um, And that was really powerful on an island that was still under British colonial rule where people were living in great poverty and hardship and the kind of daily humiliations of, of living under the British. And so the theology of Rastafari really became this kind of powerful ideology of liberation in Jamaica, um, carrying it right through its independence from Britain into the 70s when politicians such as Michael Manley drew upon it to kind of move the country towards democratic socialism. And and I'm wondering if also it was possible at that great remove, that great physical remove, to mythologize Ethiopia a little bit too. Most of the people who were uh, engaging in this in in Jamaica had never been to Ethiopia, but they knew things, right? I mean, uh, my history is really shaky right here, but my recollection is that Ethiopia turned back the much more modernly armed Italian army in a famous battle there. There were maybe kind of some reasons to think, wow, if this is going to happen, maybe this is where it's happening already. Yes, exactly. So Ethiopia was the last uncolonized territory in Africa until the Italian invasion. And it it had successfully defended one Italian invasion before the next that led to Haile Selassie being exiled for a a while. Um, But Ethiopia always was this kind of legendary, mythical 
place, like even before the Rastafari religion, um, there were many Black intellectuals who were kind of drawing upon it as, as a way to imagine alternative futures for what a more equal America could look like. But, you know, it, it was it's deeply paradoxical because there's the myth of Ethiopia and then there's the reality of Haile Selassie's regime there. And of course, he was a kind of you know, terrible autocrat against his own people. Um, and another paradox was that, you know, Haile Selassie didn't even consider himself to be Black. He thought that he was Semitic, which led to a number of other prominent Black intellectuals, such as Marcus Garvey, to kind of write him off. And then Garvey himself found <laughs> himself caught up in the Rastafari religion um, and hailed as John the Baptist whether he liked it or not. So um, one of the things, and we should say, emphasize, we said this earlier, but Selassie is another person. In addition to everything else, he also didn't, he didn't want this label. Uh, he didn't want to be a god, and didn't think he was. Um, you know, one of the things that's clear throughout your book, and you go back and you look at the index, There's an in, the index is entirely just the names of people who have been you know, cast in this peculiar light of being deified one way or another. Uh, and I think there's 85 names and 75 of them are men. So what's going on there? Uh, why, why would it be, why wouldn't it be a little bit more evenly proportioned? Yeah. So, you know, I, I didn't start off to write a book entirely about men. I really thought I was going to find more female figures um, in my research, but but I just couldn't find them. And I think a lot of it has to do with who's writing down the stories. So, so many of, of my stories come from the accounts of colonizers. You know, they're Christian missionaries and sailors and military officers and bureaucrats. And they're the ones who are recording these stories of apotheosis from all parts of the world. But they're writing from within a tradition where... God is, you know, seen as male, God the Father, and also white. And so women just aren't being mistaken for gods in their accounts because they just don't look like God themselves. Um, so I think, I think, you know, the the question of who's like who are the myth makers has profoundly influenced um, the the fact that we don't find more stories of female gods. But there are a few interesting exceptions. So one of one of them is Queen Victoria, who in 1833, a religion was reported to have sprung up around her in Orissa in India that worshipped her as God and also apparently reverenced this silver dish that she had presented to a regiment of Gurkhas or troops. And so the British kind of seized upon this story as proof of the kind of fanatic, religious fanaticism of Indians um, and as proof that British civilizing influence was still needed. But for me, the story is really interesting because Queen Victoria herself was profoundly against women's rights. Like here's this person who has supreme political power over an empire and is even worshipped as a god. And yet she didn't believe that women should have any political rights. She famously wrote about a, a female suffragette uh, at the time that she should be whipped. <laughs> so so it, it's kind of a way to really like just look at 
you know, the deep paradoxes of people who are who find themselves unexpectedly turned divine. Yeah, as, a, as I was thinking about all this, we have to go to a break right now, but I was also thinking, you know, maybe the parallel is, and it's not a perfect analogy, partly because it doesn't really happen in real time, but within Catholicism and, and to a certain extent more uh, a, a little bit uh, in, in the sort of greater picture of Christianity, you have the so-called Marian cult. You have this notion of what are you going to do with Mary? Well, I mean, you know, the assumption kind of suggests some some form of divinity, um, and, and it seems as though over the centuries, popes are constantly issuing guidance about Mary. Well, she can do this, but she can't do this, and you can do this, but you can't say that about her. I mean, and, and there's this kind of idea that they they'd like to do something with this female aspect uh, of of the Trinity, but they don't know what to do. Right, exactly. Mary has kind of always been this sort of liminal, almost dangerous, kind of unplaceable figure. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, the book Accidental Gods by Ana Della Subin uh, on men unwittingly turned divine. We'll come back after this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I've got one or two things to say. Look, you've got it all wrong. You don't need to follow me. You don't need to follow anybody. You've got to think for yourself. You're all individuals. Yes, we're all individuals. You're all different. Yes, we are all different. I'm not. You all got to work it out for yourself. Yes, we got to work it out for ourselves. Exactly. All right, that of course is from the life of Brian, uh, yet uh, another messianic figure denying uh, his status, and quite plausibly, I think, in the case of Brian. Uh, with us today is Anadella Subin, uh, the author of Accidental Gods on Men Unwittingly Turned Divine. Well, there are a lot of through lines 
that we could pursue Anadella from Life of Brian, but um, maybe one that we could do is the sheer number of people with British accents and military backgrounds uh, who, one, one way or another, wind up uh, with this status. And it might. And one thing that is clear is you don't have to be a nice person to be considered to be a god, and it might not even really help you that much to be a nice person. Maybe we could talk about, I think he's a brigadier general, John Nicholson. Uh, let's uh, give people a sense of, of this individual. Oh, yeah. So the brigadier general, John Nicholson, is probably the most bad-tempered. Um, he's actually been called psychopathic, uh, colonial British figure in the book. Um, So in the 19th century, he was in India, um, and he's just famous for, you know, his brutality. And yet this, this religion arose around him calling themselves the Nicolsanis who worshipped him. And, you know, there, there are many British accounts of this, which kind of emphasize that, you know, he would beat his worshippers for worshiping him. And he was so dismayed because he was, you know, allegedly a deeply pious Christian. Um, But the more he, he beat them, the greater their adoration grew. And Nicholson ended up being killed in, in the Indian rebellion of 1857. And some of his followers allegedly killed themselves as well at the death of their God. Um, But, you know, he's an example of just, you know, you can't just like the most kind of bad tempered figure. Um, And yet his deification was a way for people to try to seize some of that power for themselves, a way to kind of appropriate the violence that was the Brigadier General Nicholson and kind of use it to empower themselves in, in you know, under the British colonial rule. Right. Uh, and and is, was there any particular reason for it being him? There were plenty of bad-tempered British military officers sprinkled around the British Empire upon which the sun never set. Uh, how, is, was there anything that sort of singled him out for this treatment? Um, so his other assets were apparently he was very tall, um, and that's true of a lot of gods in my book. Um, they all they all have tall statures. Um, he was said to be handsome. Another thing that's common across the stories, um, which pops up, is that he didn't like to talk a lot. He was kind of silent, and so that also furthered the sense that there was something supernatural about him. Right. We could modify that old saying and saying it's better to keep your mouth shut and be thought a God <laughs> rather than to open it and remove all doubt that you are. Exactly. <laughs> um, but that's not true in the case of Prince Philip, for instance. Right. So let's talk about Prince Philip. This is also very tall, uh, my recollection being, also very tall, a, a Brit of great stature, uh, and, 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 and an unlikely person. I mean, he's not even within the royal household, within the kind of Windsor uh, ecosystem, that towering a figure except physically. So so what happens? Who decides he might be a god? Yeah, so in 1974, Philip was vacationing with the queen um, in the South Pacific aboard the royal yacht Britannia, um, and they were nearby the island of Tana in Vanuatu, 
where a few local chiefs saw Philip standing on the deck of his yacht. Um, and, you know, I guess he was very tall and he was probably wearing his white naval uniform um, and looking resplendent. Um, and they had the realization that he was the son of this local volcano god called Kaldalbin, uh, who had gone out into the world and it was said he would one day return to Tana and bring with him an end to all death itself and prosperity would reign on the island. And so this idea, you know, persisted and spread into a religion that exists into the present day. Um, and, you know, it, it might seem like incredibly unlikely that they would choose Philip of all people, but Philip actually like started this kind of pen pal relationship with his worshipers, um, which I think, you know, really did much to kind of keep the religion going and encourage it. Um, so for instance, some of his worshipers sent him a ritual pig killing stick, and then he posed with it on the lawn of the palace and sent back a portrait and then eventually they actually had a face-to-face -face meeting in Windsor Castle. But, you know, over the decades, the palace really participated in, in creating the theology of the religion just as much as, as people on the island of Tana. It was kind of this really interesting mutual myth-making, and it served the British quite well as Tana moved to independence from the British and the French it kind of, for the British, it seemed to show that the British monarchy was still somehow special. It was somehow divine. Um, it was still a people kind of set apart from the ordinary. And, the, and I wonder also if Philip's rather unusual status, even within that family, I don't know how much these islanders would have paid attention to anything like that, may have contributed. The sense that, well, actually, we, we have a clip from the series The Crown. You're going to hear Tobias Menzies as uh, Prince Philip uh, talking to uh, Diana uh, as she's beginning to be ingested uh, by this particular family. You're right to call me an outsider. I was an outsider the day that I met the a 13-year-old princess who would one day become my wife. And after all these years, I still am. We all are. Everyone in this system is a lost, lonely, irrelevant outsider. Apart from the one person the only person that matters. She's the oxygen we all breathe, the essence of all our duty. All right, there's some other kinds of mythologizing going on there too, but you can sort of also maybe understand why they would feed that fire, particularly because, as he suggests in that clip, you know, the British monarchy, to the extent that it has any force at all, is kind of monotheistic. Uh, so you know, you can sort of see why it might be kind of attractive to Philip and to maybe the whole family to you know have him have this status someplace else. Absolutely, and you know, like there's been you know a lot of like quite like you know derogatory racist press around the Philip worshippers in Vanuatu, um, especially in British papers or kind of, you know, 
journalists poking fun at the religion. Um, but, you know, what I'm suggesting in the book is that it's actually really no more strange to worship Prince Philip as divine than to believe in the divine right of kings, which still very much propels, you know, just the existence of the British monarchy today, you know, and and the question of whether the British monarchy should still even exist in this day and age. And so Prince Philip's divinity very much became a sort of set piece in his biography, which has been endlessly repeated. And you can see how how it is, you know, it's actually a very deeply compelling idea for for the palace itself. So much we want to cover here. Uh, And as a result, uh, I mean, I could have like 10 more minutes of this particular conversation, but I don't think we can do that uh, because we want to explore even more of this fascinating book. It's Accidental Gods, written by Ana Della Subin, the subtitle um, on men unwittingly turned divine. Why don't we take a quick break here uh, and we'll come back with one more segment. Yes, I'm the great pretender Pretending that I'm doing well My need is such I pretend too much I'm lonely, but no one can tell it's time for me to say some important thank yous. One of them is, of course, to Cat Pastor, the technical producer of The Colin McEnroe Show. This one is a little bit complicated. We're actually recording it in advance and adding some stuff in later. And you have to have people who are far more competent than I am to do things like that. Same goes for uh, Lily Tyson, also way more com- competent than I am. She's the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show and the producer of this episode. Uh, and this episode is all about uh, Ana Della Subin, uh, the author of Accidental gods on men unwittingly turned divine. So, yeah, in the time that remains, maybe we can talk a little bit about Captain Cook. Um, Captain Cook uh, is an example of one of those kinds of explorers, adventurers, who seems to have either been mistaken for a god, made into a god, or maybe just stepped into sort of a, a, a theistic narrative that existed uh, in a certain place and, and then started to fit the narrative more than he even understood or realized. But maybe you can flesh that out for us. Yeah, so in 1779, Captain Cook landed in Hawaii um, and was allegedly rapturously received as a god um, by thousands of Hawaiians who presented him with offerings and um, he was taken to a temple and priests, you know, sacrificed pigs to him. Um, And he was, he was treated as a god for two weeks on the island. Um, But then he set sail again uh, in search for the Northwest Passage, um, but the ship's mast was broken in a storm. uh, So he returned, he had to turn back to the island. And when he landed the second time, he received a completely different uh, reception. uh, And a group of Hawaiian warriors attacked him and bludgeoned him to death. And then he was dismembered. And so according to some scholars like Marshall Solins, who recently passed away, Captain Cook was kind of unwittingly playing out the script of this myth called the Makahiki. Captain Cook was hailed 
as this fertility god Lono, and he had arrived just at the moment in the calendar when Lono's festival was being celebrated, and Lono is to fight a sham battle with the king, and so he was kind of playing out this myth which led to his killing. Um, And after he died, all of these prophecies were reported by his sailors that Captain Cook was going to resurrect. And so these stories were taken back to Britain um, and just, you know, endlessly told and retold um, that Captain Cook had been, you know, hailed as a god and then ritually slaughtered. And when missionaries arrived in Hawaii, they became a kind of powerful teaching tool for Christianity that painted Hawaiians as this kind of deeply fallen people. And so the myths kind of had this had this role, I'm suggesting, in legitimizing what then became the American occupation of Hawaii. So... Well, I guess we have to say this because you mentioned it already. You said the word Trump at a certain point. Uh, and uh, there's just no way to absorb every single story and subplot of the four-year Trump presidency. But this is one of them that I didn't know. Uh, maybe you better clue us in. Yeah. So in my book, I'm telling the story of uh, this religion that arose around Trump in a village outside of Hyderabad um, in 2018, when this man, Busa Krishna, um, decided to worship Trump as an avatar of Vishnu. And he created a temple in his backyard and this gigantic idol of Trump. um, And he would meditate holding his portrait under a tree. and offer sacrifices to him. And his family thought he was totally crazy. And then when Trump ended up contracting coronavirus, this man began a hunger fast. And the story took a tragic ending uh, when he actually died the day that Trump uh, left the hospital. And so, you know, like the story was reported a lot in the American press and it seems to check all the boxes of what makes a religion. There's temples, there's scriptures. Um, But in my book, I'm suggesting that like this only just gives a kind of recognizably religious form to things that are happening all around us in America today, you know, much closer to home. I think, you know, anyone kind of looking at the adoration of Trump uh, and the myths of QAnon would have the sense that there's just something beyond the secular happening there. There's a sort of syncretism that's going on uh, and some of America's degraded information climate really kind of represents a joining together of what used to be called New Age and woo-woo and stuff like that with uh, more standard right-wing paranoia. But they're all kind of making common cause around a certain set of issues. Uh, And it does have to it, I think, uh, a slightly mystical feeling uh, and, and maybe an extremely mystical fe- feeling. So we, we might be able to go – we might have to go through uh, another one uh, of these periods. So I guess you know, as you step away from this, if, if it's possible for you to ever do that, um, I mean my sense running through the book is there's something – it's usually a sign 
of something unhealthy is going something unhealthy is going on right there there is there is either a colonialist or imperialist state of oppression which people are trying to adjust their cognitive dissonance about or as you say there's upheaval there's transition uh, there's maybe transition that was not entirely bloodless it doesn't feel as though this just happens uh, on a normal day when it's sunny out and people feel like think you know making somebody into a new god Right, exactly. You know, it, it's these moments of kind of upheaval um, when things seem out of joint. You know, I think people kind of deeply need a sense of something immortal. Um, they need a sense of some kind of like concrete future or some kind of myth or a transcendent kind of theory just to make sense of make sense of, you know, the world around them. So Moments of apotheosis become kind of powerful ways to make sense of very challenging circumstances across all the stories in my book. Do you think also that there's this sort of – I've always believed that there's a kind of fundamental human uh, hunger for polythe- polytheism. Uh, for all of the exaltation of uh, monotheistic Abrahamic religions, the truth is – they're full of angels and saints and, and these sort of things that are these intermediary uh, or jinn or, you know, I mean, there are these things that are these intermediary creatures, not quite gods, not quite not gods. Um, it, it really, I feel as though there's almost a kind of restlessness we have when someone says, nope, nope, just one God, nobody else out there. It's just you and this one God. It doesn't take very long before you start coming up with something like a saint who has mysterious and pretty obviously supernatural powers. I mean, do we have some kind of weird appetite for things like that? Absolutely. I think, you know, even in the most ruthlessly monotheistic traditions, you you keep finding divinity, you know, across the spectrum, as you say, from like saints to jinn or spirits. And I, I don't know, I think, you know, what draws me to the subject personally is that I also kind of feel this hunger and longing to deify myself, you know, um, I could like rattle off lots of people who I think should should be turned divine. Um, and so, yeah, it's a powerful urge that, you know, I think. I think we're all implicated in. Yeah, yeah. Not for nothing are rock stars often referred to as idols. Um, and not for nothing uh, are we currently entranced and almost kind of dominated by a superhero culture on the screens. I mean, there are there is one group of superheroes who I think are called new gods. But in general, superheroes have, you know, supernatural powers. That's one of the things we, we like about them so much. Um, and it feels as though that's another kind of projection, right? Another way of slaking that appetite for just this incredibly binary existence with one God and then, you know, seven billion people. Yeah, I had to make the decision in writing my book that I just wasn't going to include sports stars, (laughs) artists, singers, Elvis, because, you know, it it was already longer than my publishers had hoped for. Um, But there could definitely be a sequel to it. All right. Well, we look forward to the sequel. Um, This conversation's been a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah, first of all, uh, thank you very much for appearing with us today. And uh, Ana Delosubin, the book is Accidental Gods on Men Unwittingly Turned Divine. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much. It's great speaking with you. 